Hello and welcome to the Pondering Theologian podcast. I am the host, Nathaniel. In today's episode, I get to sit down with one of my uh, friends named Matt. Uh, He's a teacher here in the Midwest, and uh, he has a real passion for history and for looking at things in the realm of social studies and, and looking at what brought us to where we are today, as well as just all the intricacies of history. Um, history is not always something that people like to talk about because um, it's not always taught well, in my opinion. It's not always very engaging. Um, but there's a lot of great ways to teach and talk about history. And I think that in this conversation, Matt and I get to some of the uh, heart of those issues. And then we, we kind of... Have, look at America, because that's where we live, and the history of America. We do a little bit of look at the history of the world and Christianity, and it, it's kind of a, a fun little episode uh, series here that we're going to have looking at social contexts, uh, history, parallels between uh, kind of the humanities being dropped behind while more of your STEM subjects are pushed forward and what may have led to that sort of thing across the historical timeline. So I hope that you enjoy this uh, three-part series. Listen, let me know if you have any questions. Maybe if we have enough questions, we'll be able to bring Matt back on and discuss them. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. Welcome to the Pondering Theologian. Thanks for coming on today. Um, if you'd like to introduce yourself real quick, let the people know who you are and a little bit about your background. Uh, my name is Matt. Uh, I'm a teacher uh, in uh, northern Michigan, and I teach social studies, uh, sixth grade geography, uh, mostly, but I will be teaching history soon. Um, about my education, I uh, went to a regional university in Michigan and uh, currently working on a master's degree in instructional design. Uh, that's pretty much uh, for that. As far as uh, my religious views, uh, I'm United Methodist, grew up United Methodist, uh, participated in several uh youth groups and have been active in the church since I was probably in middle school. I'm still active. My wife and I uh, still attend and have done different um, uh, leadership roles in the church. So I'm really happy with that. Gotcha. Uh, What is your bachelor's in, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah. So my bachelor's is in history education. Uh, I have or had a minor in geography, and I uh, have the social studies endorsement. In Michigan, uh, you have the opportunity to get uh, certified as a teacher in different content areas. Uh, I found it to be most useful to be 
certified in social studies despite having a degree in uh, history and then geography. So I can teach any any social studies related content or class six through 12, I can teach any of those classes. Current events, government, economics, took some additional classes in college that allowed me to do that. Okay. Um, and what, what drew you into, well, I guess this is a two-part question. First, what drew you into um, history? Because uh, that is, a, that is a focus and something we've spent a lot of time talking about. Um, and then what drew you to be a teacher? You know, I think those two things for me are very related because uh, growing up, I'd always wanted to be a farmer. My dad is a farmer, still is a farmer. Uh, and when I got to high school, or well, I guess back up a little bit. In middle school, I had an eighth grade history teacher who was really good at telling stories. He told history as if it were a story, just one really long connected story, different characters, different plots, you know, and sometimes there would be a good plot twist and he would, he would tell the story, tell history as a story. And I found that just to be really intriguing. And then when I got to high school, uh, the next teacher took it a little bit farther where, you know, history was a story, but there also is there for you to understand and think about and look for meaning in. And I was, I just really, when I could, I could remember I, I just liked history so I could remember it better. And I often would then help my friends with our history homework or I'd watch videos on YouTube and I just really enjoyed it. And then later in high school, I pretty much almost had a realization one day where I was like, you know, I really like talking about history. And I was, you know, maybe I want to be a history teacher. So I then started looking in, in ways that I, you know, what would it take to become a history teacher? And then I, um, you know, was able to do that. I, I will say that I, I loved history way more than I loved the idea of like kids or, um, say that jokingly almost now, but uh, kids or even like teaching or education because my first love was always history. Uh, and then as I got into my career or even into college, you know, it definitely became those two are so intertwined. Not only do I love history, but I love uh, talking about history with kids, helping them to understand the past and helping them to take meaning of where we've been, where we're going, and that sort of nature. So. Do, you think, do you think that was because, I mean, I mean, so we both uh, like to, to talk about the things we're passionate about. Uh, mm -hmm. And do you think that the conversation and why it became almost synonymous with with the educating and, and children is because it's almost easier or i find it's almost easier sometimes to approach those conversations than with uh older adults or even just i guess you could say young adults sometimes i find that there's just already that kind of disposition where they aren't as open to understanding all aspects of it and that's that's not always the case obviously you know people in college are are there to learn or there are people who are just genuinely interested but um i will find um like you and i have had conversations for for quite a while about um kind of constitution and american history world history and where they kind of overlap and we see different things change but that's not always an easy conversation to have with adults 
Yeah, I definitely think that uh, students, middle schoolers, high schoolers, I think that depending on how you go, how you approach it with them, because what I have found is that sometimes the the kids that are that that enjoy history or they enjoy learning about it, sometimes they've already um, done, like they've already learned some things that either were were not necessarily accurate or they already have some opinions that aren't fully informed. So sometimes those are hard. I mean, just like adults, sometimes they're hard to talk to about some of those things. But I would say more more or less the case is that kids are genuinely curious. Um, they're genuinely curious about history and, and different things that are affecting our country. Like teaching sixth, sixth grade geography, uh, you would think it doesn't often tie into American history or uh, sort of where our world is today. But it does. And a lot of times students will ask, you know, how does this, like, how are these two things related? Or, you know, how did this become that? Or especially when we talked about like the Ukraine and uh, Russia conflict, there were a lot of like, why do we care? You know, and there, and there were just some really good segues into, um, you know, bringing meaning to like, okay, why does the United States care? Why should you care? Why should you not care? Is it worth it? There are a lot of things that you can get students thinking about almost both sides of issues because they aren't already a, opinionated. And I say that more or less as um, not a good thing or bad thing, but but as adults, we, we have a lot of our beliefs by the time you hit your 20s. You know, when you talk to a 10-year-old about why did Russia invade Ukraine or an 11-year-old, uh, they they don't have the concept of the world quite put together yet, and they don't have their opinions put together yet. So it's really easy to have, I'd say, very genuine and open conversations with them about, well, what do you think? Well, here are some other things you should think about. You know, what's important? Uh, one of my favorite, you know, questions, you know, that I like to ask kids about, you know, especially world affairs. What should we do if anything? Should we do anything? If so why or if not why because it gets them to to really put together their beliefs and their values which as a teacher i really as a, and a social studies teacher especially you know i like to almost kind of figure like you know how would you vote on this issue if if you could vote and so we we have some good discussions about that that sort of thing of course i think we veered off a long ways with, with this question but um, a lot of good stuff yeah, yeah absolutely I think that's that's one of the one of my favorite things about having conversations with uh, with with you is that we we will go off on these little tangents, but they're all always connected in some way. Hmm. Um, so I guess I personally feel that history over the years is is not always taught well, hmm. um, and and that can mean in an interesting manner, as you indicated earlier with your uh, education. There were those people who taught history or talked about history in a way that was genuinely engaging. Um, and I feel like at times it is often, uh, history is often neglected um, and the importance of history and why it's necessary to have a good concept of that history. Um, and, and so when I, I guess when I say it's not taught well, it's not really always communicated just how necessary it is to understand those things. 
like we, we talked, uh, like you mentioned with Ukraine and the, the Russian conflict. Um, so I guess, what are your thoughts on the overall kind of way that the American teaching of history or the espousing of history uh, is in the uh, American educational system? Lots of words, I apologize. Um, kind of that, that direction. Do you think that there's just an issue or do you think that it is a perception issue in the way that it's taught? There are a lot of ways to go about answering this question. And I really think that um, most educators would give you a similar answer in that it's, it's quite a loaded question because, I mean, if we're talking about the education system in general, and, and I'll be honest, I don't have an answer. I don't have a, this is exactly what I think should happen to fix the problem. But one of the early steps in you know, making something better is identifying a problem. And, and I struggle with when we talk about just education in general in the United States is a lot of it is forced. And I struggle with that because I, as an educator, believe that everybody should go to, go to school for as long as they can to learn as long as they can, to learn as much as they can. And I like to think that for most people, that is true or that is um, what's best for them. The fact is, though, that, you know, each core subject, if, if you think about education system as we learn our core subjects, plus some electives, kindergarten through 12th grade, and then you gain job skills, career skills after that post, or, you know, uh, post-secondary education, thinking about K-12, it's really hard to get kids engaged for in our in our country we go to school from typically 8 a.m to 3 p.m and a lot of times kids will have four to five minute passing times and i'm talking more middle school high school i'm not as familiar with elementary school because i'm a secondary teacher but we we have six seven sometimes eight classes for kids to squeeze into that six to seven hour period of time with a half hour for lunch four minute, five minute passing times. There's just a lot that we expect out of our kids in such a small amount of time. Obviously it's been somewhat effective because we have a generally educated populace. Of course that can be debatable. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, I, I just think it's hard because I think of my personal experience and if you just said, in middle school, hey, you can skip English class for like, I'd be like, sweet, we'll see y'all later. I'm gonna go to a, a second history class. That sounds way more fun. Uh, so it's hard, to, I guess my point here is that it's hard to keep kids engaged in things that they may not be interested in for as long as we expect them to. Uh, I think about, uh, I did a cultural project with my students this past school year uh, where we did a culture exchange with a German school um, from from Germany. They, 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 uh, the teacher reached out uh, to my community about looking at doing a culture exchange between German students and, and American students. And uh, this, this was more of an English project because their English is a second language or my students, of course, like most American schools, just English. So uh, it was neat to, to look at how they approached school differently. 
in Germany, at least in this community, I guess I can't speak for the entire um, organization or institutions over there, but for their school, they they scheduled classes almost like college, where you had you have to get so many hours of class time, so many hours of, like with credits were actual hours. So kids would have, you know, they may not start school till eight o'clock, but they'd be done by one, or they would have like second or third period off because they've already met the requirements for any classes offered that hour. So the the kids have a lot more freedom, which of course leads to some other issues that they experience. But um, it's just interesting how the United States, we, um, if you think about the history of the United States, or if you ever learn about um, like our education in the United States, um, it really became um, a strong institution during uh, the industrialization period of the United States, where, you know, it was factory and things were very standardized. And I think we, that, that sort of um, concept has continued through our education system right up until today, where it's very cookie cutter. Now we've done better, I would say, I would argue, the last several decades where there's more freedom once you get to high school a lot more schools have offered different electives and college classes and trade routes and stuff like that, or, or trade uh, trade school routes, things like that. Um, but it's really hard, I think, for the way we have our system built to, to teach all of the subjects like with fidelity, because okay. I, I think back to like, like I said, my experience where like, I, I liked history. I didn't really, I mean, it's hard for, for kids, especially to recognize the importance of this work that they're doing now. Uh, I think of like, if you can imagine sitting in like a middle school classroom, learning English and reading, say you're doing some poetry. I always hated poetry until recently. I'd say, you know, when I got to college, I could appreciate it more, but in middle school, it's like, what do these 15 words matter? It doesn't matter. Right. What, but but it's not about the, the words, it's about, you know, thinking and, and processing and, and those skills that build and, and are able to um, be the foundation of who you become as a person. And it's hard to, to get that across to, I think, to, to children, especially. Um, so, again, I don't have any like solutions to the problem. I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know what the options are. I don't know what what would be better. But I know that there are some issues with the way that we structure our, our education system. Um, speaking directly to history, I think that is a um, another sort of societal issue that I think we have, we kind of shift. I, th I think history as being an important subject, I think ebbs and flows. The last few decades, I think, especially since the like early 2000s, where we have a lot of like push for STEM. I don't know exactly when the STEM push started because my career uh, is is still quite quite young, but I know that in college uh, and even when I was in high school, um, there was always a, a push for if you want to be successful, you go into the STEM categories, right? You science, technology, engineering, mathematics, do those things. Okay, well, you know what's not in STEM? History. You know what's not gonna help you vote better? STEM. You know what's gonna not help you put together your 
political beliefs and how you're going to participate in a society um, as your civic duty and your civic responsibilities, STEM. So when we push all these STEM careers and these uh, and classes in high school where we neglect, you know, advanced history classes or civil, you know, engagement classes, you know, we're, we're kind of, you can't have both, you know, you, you uh, students only have so many classes they take, you know, and when there's a push for, think about your career, go into engineering. Okay, well, take all the engineering classes you can, take all the math classes you can. Okay, never mind that, that AP history class that you could take, you know, or really trying to engage with, you know, government classes. You know, I think there's been a, a priority in, in, in our country for STEM, which then has let go of the priority of history and social studies. Do you think that in part, kind of going back to what you were talking about with the education like system model that has been kind of prevalent, because um, we we are still very much in the shadows of the industrial revolution um, style education system. Um, do you think in part some of it is that process, right? We get into um, say 50, 60 years ago, we started seeing some shifts and the U.S. has started getting gaps, bigger gaps in some of those areas like mathematics. The, the U.S. is not as uh, not as as contemporary in the education level or scores because it's mm -hmm. all about scores yeah. um, with uh, with other countries, which I mean, there, there's other other issues there like like language and um, but do you think in part we have shifted this major focus to try and correct an issue that is now creating another issue yeah and i i i would agree with that statement for the most part that you know the two issues are are related um i definitely uh see that because of the lack of, um, I'm just like freedom of choice, um, the lack of the, I'm gonna call it like being genuine in a, in a, in a person's education before the graduate high school can, has definitely led to some of those issues where, where we have that STEM. And, and because the United States is very much focused on how, you know, like you, your career is one of the most important things you do. Well, what careers pay? What careers um, benefit our economy? Well, a lot of people do not see that, you know, a degree in history or studying history more or social studies, you know, those aren't gonna pay, you know, the, the um, your return on investment on history classes is not as perceived to be as high as say STEM classes. And I think that's where some of the uh, discrepancies sort of happened. Um, because I mean, uh, when, when people think about, you know, making money, I mean, a teacher does not make as much money as an engineer. I have several engineering friends. I'm confident their pay is double mine. <laughs> so um, I've got friends in technology uh, and and they their um, uh, their their pay is triple mine actually the one I can think of in particular and you know and and I 
kind of go back to, you know, as a country, what do we, what do we value? You know, I, I really enjoy the saying, put your money where your mouth is. Uh, because a lot of times people just go where the money is, but yet sometimes that, that le- there are a lot of unintended consequences mm. for that. That's perfectly fair. Yeah. I think it's interesting to kind of expand the, the lens, the, the things that we're seeing in American society, um, more specifically American than even fully Western, mm-hmm. um, the, the discrepancies that are happening. Um, thinking of like music, there is a greater decline in the amount of professional classical musicians for for instance yet historically that is where some of the richest cultural things are um, across time consistently especially if we think you know when we we get into um, uh, pipe organs for instance there's a declining number of beautiful pipe organs throughout uh, America and the Western world in general, I guess, um, just because there's less people learning how to upkeep them. There's less places building them. There's less people that can play them. Um, and I, I'm someone who loves those, those churches with those beautiful organs built in. Um, Mm -hmm. and they're much harder to find, um, over time because, uh, Again, the cost to maintain them is more expensive because there's less people that can work on them. They have to charge more per hour because their time is more valuable. And so it's an interesting, just like this one area of, I guess you call it more the art side of things. Yeah. And and that, that change in focus because of what I would argue is the discrepancy created in the past to now shift to try to fix the areas where we are weaker is creating more weakness and so when our children are, you know, in high school, what will it look like? Or when our grandchildren are in high school, what will it look like? Will there be a resurgence in pipe organ, uh, you know, manufacturers? There's a possibility. There's, There's always a chance. With that, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I had a thought uh, while, while, while you were discussing that. And I, and I want to share it because I find this interesting. In, in some some characteristics of our society, well, okay, in all characteristics of our society, there is change. You know, whether we're talking about the pipe organs in a church, or if we're talking about the teaching resources used in a classroom, right? No matter how you could you can name any any part of our economy, any industry, any part of your life, sports, whatever. And, and you can see that um, the avenue in which we enjoy or participate in something might shift, but sometimes the root stays the same. I've never been, I mean, uh, organs, the pipe organs are beautiful pieces of machinery. They sound cool and they're beautiful, but I enjoy that some of that has been replaced with a praise band or that something we're finding more in churches than we never did before a soundboard. Yeah. I mean, 
and and so when you're talking about almost like the it's it's sad and it is sad especially for somebody who enjoys the pipe organ from i don't know something of a geography perspective seeing the difference in technology i mean the roots the same still worshiping in in church with music praising you know doing all of that just the the avenue in which the the uh, music is enjoyed is different so i think that part is really really cool to see some of the changes in uh in the technology um now of course sometimes there are some bigger changes with that but but yeah i just thought it was kind of neat it's like okay there's no more pipe organ but maybe there's still a pianist or maybe you still have a lead singer or a worship band or what's what's that being replaced with and is that just as good now sometimes it's not as good sometimes it's not um i i have never participated in a worship service like this but i have some friends who who worship in fact they will only worship in uh churches that have no music at all or no uh instruments they only worship a cappella and and their reasoning is that the early church that's how they worshiped and so that's how they want to stay truest to the original um like way that worship was done which i again i i wouldn't do that i really enjoy music in the more contemporary way but but um i just that's neat i i think the the change in in technology has has big impacts on the people who experience it it is interesting yeah yeah. I think it'll be interesting kind of continuing in that line though to see mm-hmm. what happens over time um, and this may be a conversation for another time um, but thinking of even the the way that worship is conducted or the quality of the material used at times mm-hmm. and I'm not not going to, to try to argue that like hymns, like uh, Charles Wesley's mm-hmm. hymns are the best of hymns um, to, to pick on pick on you because you're a Methodist. Um, yeah. But uh, but there are different. I think there's almost more controversies at times around worship music today. Oh, so for think sure. Of, like in Christ Alone, it's a beautiful song. I have belted it out many of times. It is continually a rubbing point and like the last time the PCUSA Presbyterian Church USA put together their hymn uh, hymnal they specifically requested that a line be changed by the um, composer of that song to make it more in line with what the PCUSA felt is biblical um, more more biblically accurate and there was a refusal to that and so it's been left out but there's still many a presbyterian who is upset that it wasn't included because they don't fully understand because maybe that history or the um the teaching of the theology around it has been neglected a little bit over time and i find that interesting which kind of leads back into the, the the starting point of this question of I wonder at times, especially as I go through working through my master's in um, the area of like theology and whatnot, there's many things that I realized that has not been fully espoused in a church setting. 
some churches are really good about teaching very well, not just preaching, because preaching and teaching are not the same. Um, and I think that the teaching side of that sometimes, or the, the fully educating way of preaching, um, leaves room for those gaps and for you not to necessarily understand where there may be a theological or a biblical issue with a song. Um, so I find that a little bit interesting kind of in, in context to what we've been talking about. Yeah, uh, a couple of thoughts on that. Um, just like when a person is studying history, I don't, like there are a lot of ways or a lot of means to the same end. And when you talk about, you know, in Christ alone and that particular line, the wrath of God was satisfied. I'm pretty sure it's what you were mentioning. I don't know if you were. Yeah. Yeah. No, that particular yeah. One. So, so I think that's a really interesting because in when we, when you study history or, or anything uh, at large like that, that is a genuine curiosity by several people, you know, does this fit what I think does, should that be changed? And I think churches as with the greater society, I think we've gotten really, really bad at asking questions. One of my favorite things that I tell students when I'm in class in the classroom is, Hey, there's no such thing as a stupid question. And so people say like, you, uh, you know, you ask a stupid question, get a stupid answer. Cannot stand that because I think that it's not it's not fair to the people who are are trying to learn something, right? You only learn something genuinely when you begin to ask questions. And and I think in the church, it's really hard to get people to ask questions without shutting down or getting upset because a person's faith is tied to their values, which is who they define themselves as a person. And when a person begins challenging those things, and the truth is for politics, and, and in our country, we've struggled with that for a long time. I would argue since the 1770s, but I digress. But so we, when we ask those questions, it, it really is hard for us to, you know, put it together. And I think it's hard it's hard to do that well. It's hard to, um, yeah. So it's something that the the church at large is um, can struggle with and has struggled with, especially when we see things like like the that's that hymn. I think you made a great point. I think that there is a genuine hunger for that. And I've seen that more. Um, but I think, again, it comes back to kind of where we are as a society around some of those things. Because there's some people kind of like history where they almost turtle and they go, this is my shell. This is my understanding of what the constitution means. This is my understanding of where America's identity is in history. Um, and so there, there's some people and they're the ones that, that shout the loudest. So they're the most seen. 
um, in in Christianity, where if those questions are asked, like why is the wrath of God was satisfied, a controversial line, where does it necessarily line up with um, like the the reformed understanding of scripture? Um, when people ask those questions, some people will turtle and go, well, don't, don't question the wrath of God, um, rather than go back and re-examine. Because um, kind of to continue with that, the a, a major turnoff for a lot of people around Christianity is the angry God of the Old Testament and just how stark it seems to many people between the Old Testament and the New Testament and seeming that God is this angry, judgmental bastard, so to speak. And then in the New Testament, we get Jesus, who's just, you know, a hippie by some people's standards, just wants to hang out and, and love on people and gets angry a couple times. But in general, it seems very stark. And so people will latch on to that um, without going deeper or um, understanding historical contexts to better understand, no, there's actually a loving God in the Old Testament or the First Testament. And it's, you just have to understand contextually what's going on, or you have to understand the role that like Israel plays in the shaping of um, Judaism or Christianity mm -hmm. or Islam, the, the, the starting point there. Um, and I think, I think for the people who are genuinely interested, uh, there are a lot of them, but sometimes, it's, and it's not everywhere, this is just kind of a generalist comment, so there's always going to be that, that, that place where it's wrong, but in general right now, the loudest people speaking are those people who are turtling or who are latching on to um, some sort of incomplete theology or flawed theology, um, which just kind of gets us into the issues we see in America with Christian nationalism on the rise or just the, the rise of nationalism. And, 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 and that becomes toxic. And so it's harder to ask those questions to understand. And I think that's why in part in Christ alone will probably continue to be controversial for quite a long time. And, you know, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because as long as it gets people to consider and to question, I think it's good because I really like the way you said one of your last statements was um, an incomplete theology because I, I have a hard time believing that people intentionally, and again, like you said earlier, generally speaking, there are the exceptions to the rule, but I, I have a hard, in, when, when we're talking about um, genuine faith, when we're talking about in the local church, I have a really hard time believing that people intentionally mislead or intentionally um, like leave out things that um, that could either hurt a person's faith or uh, push someone out or make them whatever. So I really like the way you said incomplete because when when studying history and as the history teacher on your podcast, I like to, to tie this back to 
there are some very good um, parallels here because when you study history, it's, it's not about finding truth or finding what actually happened or finding the meaning to something. It's about adding more meaning. It's about getting closer to the truth. It's about finding, you know, more, more pieces to the puzzle. It's not about completing the puzzle because the puzzle will never be completed, but finding more. Um, because history, as much as we like to think as history being, being linear, this, then this, then this, then this, or rather chronological or however you want to think about it, truly, uh, it's, it's a web, you know, the web has a, you know, it starts over here generally, and it goes, you know, in a forward direction generally, but it's very webbed together. Uh, when we think about the causes of any sort of large, um, any sort of large event in history, it's very complicated. There's a lot of things that go into that. Because, um, and, and I think a, a person's faith is similar. Like um, when I joined, well, when, when my wife and I moved churches, we were still United Methodist before and after the switch. But when we bought our house and we moved, um, the pastor was was very uh, insistent that we take uh, the the classes to join the church to have our membership switched, and I thought it was silly because I was already a member of the Methodist Church that I was prior. It was kind of silly for me to take it again, but it obviously wasn't. I mean, because more learning, more classes, is a good thing. There, I mean, and. What I found to be really, really interesting about that was um, this pastor did a really good job of of walking us through what it really meant to be a Christian, what it really, like what the United Methodist theology looked like, and and I, I will say there was definitely some confirmation bias in that we both already had some similar um, theology points. Of course, there were some things that were different, but it was really good conversation to just have with the pastor about what are some things that are important to you? What are some things that, what are some, you know, how do you understand God? Or anyways, getting off topic a little bit, but my point here is that um, when we were taking the class, I liked the idea of, of the resources we were using had like, um, use the analogy of like a, a, a person's life as their, uh, Christian journey. You know, are you a baby Christian? Are you a teenage Christian? Are you in a, are you getting more mature in your faith? And, and I think a lot of people kind of get stuck in the like baby Christian phase or even like a young adult Christian phase or, or something where it's very, very literalist. Um, the Bible says this word for word. So that's what I believe it means and they have a hard time pulling meaning from that well you know like the stories in the bible whether you're looking at old testament new testament um i honestly don't think it matters too much whether some of those things actually happened from a historical perspective now you could debate whether something did or didn't and that's fine the debate's fun but i, I think debating whether like noah's ark was real like there was actual a big old boat that had 
you know, a pair of each animal on it. To me, I don't think that's the point of the story. The point of the story, you know, is more about, uh, you know, like, like there's more meaning than than just, oh, you know, it's about like Noah, Noah listened to God. Noah, in his, you know, through his faith, followed God's directions, you know, was able to communicate. Like, I think that's more, more important. So meaning we can pull from that. I should try to listen for God. I should be more open in when and where is God speaking to me? Not the boat. <laughs> so, yeah. And I think in a lot of ways, we, we also look at uh, history the same way. People like to get caught up in, oh, I could list all the dates of all the battles of World War II. Okay, that's cool. But, you know, how about the fascist movement? You know, what 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 happened in Nazi Germany or in the 30s in Germany and Europe that allowed dictators to to arise with almost no limits on their power? What what happened to get regular people to join in such atrocities? Uh, You know, like there's a lot more meaning behind. things that we encounter then I think we initially want to uh, deal with because it's hard. You know, if you just said, hey, memorize these 10 dates, well, that's easy. Give me 30 minutes and I can memorize it. But to pull meaning, understanding, if we think of like, stick into my education classes, we go into like, um, you know, our the hierarchy of thinking. You know, are we memorizing? Are we really understanding? Are we analyzing, evaluating? You know, where are we as far as our depth of understanding, depth of knowledge? You know, and I think a lot of people are just content with, oh, I I can remember Bible verses. Right. And that's and that's fine, but you know, there's so much more to that. Yeah. That's it. I, I, I in part want to, to step back in a moment, um, but I think that that's a it's a great point, and and that's why I have talked about on the, on this podcast a couple times why I have issues with single Bible verse usage. It can be used very well. I've heard some great one verse or even half verse sermons. Uh, you know, digging into like the you know. We're going to look at this verse, but only to, to be, you know, splitting up the verse because it, it, the way that the number system in the Bible is, is not all, doesn't always make sense, right? It's like, if we did that to Shakespeare, it makes Shakespeare kind of weird because um, you have to find the natural break in the conversation. Mm-hmm. But because there isn't always a natural break in the conversation or because you're just pulling one sentence out, and that's what a Bible verse is. You point one sentence out, you miss that depth and you miss that thinking. So I think that's all that to say, I agree with your, just memorizing something doesn't always help, but people do get caught up on that. Um, the, the one camp that we're actually both involved with, um, one of the summer camp offerings in that we used to spend a week and there was Bible study time and you got a sheet 
and you got a point for each Bible verse you memorized. And then if you knew the Lord's Prayer and you knew all the fruits of the Spirit, you earned more points. If you learn these longer verses, if you got all of them, you got, you know, just like 500 points for not only you, but your entire cabin. And, and so we really, looking back, pushed that model of learning the verses, but not understanding why the fruits of the spirit were important. And so I think in some point, in some ways, I, I guess I would call it like the, the juvenile stage of Christianity um, is kind of reinforced and sometimes that's the model that you get rewarded for. Um, and so that's the one that stays somewhat appealing. Yeah, and I, and I think that's where as older Christians need to, I don't know, maybe us, maybe older than us, I don't know. But where where I think older Christians, maybe maybe the better term is more mature questions, m- more mature Christians. I think that would become it becomes their, dare I say us, our responsibility to to not stop there, right? Because because I, I will say memorizing Bible verses is not a bad thing. I don't think that taking the time and effort to memorize John three sixteen and seventeen or uh, whatever verse that you know sticks to a person or whatever might be that little bit of encouragement or reinforcement or comfort or whatever the word of God might provide to a person to have that memorized to provide that like in a moment's notice or for yourself I think there is a lot of um, a lot of good that can come from that. But just like we've been talking about, I don't think that's where it stops. That's that's really the beginning. That's why I really like the analogy of, you know, like a baby Christian or, or a juvenile Christian to a mature Christian. Because in my personal beliefs, I I think that that questioning your faith is an excellent an excellent way to grow your faith. You know, because you know, God, I, th- I think God works through questioning because they're, you know, you know, answered versus unanswered prayers. is a whole, whole different set of theology there. But, but I, I think that God can answer prayers through question, can, can answer a person's, um, I don't know, like internal struggle. I think there's a lot that can come out of that where if you're just, if you're just memorizing Bible verses or taking it for the concrete, um, literal meaning that, that doesn't give you room to grow. There's, there isn't that opportunity. You're not giving yourself an opportunity there and you're not giving God an opportunity there to, to work within you. If you're not, if you're not questioning, you know, I, I don't, I don't think God gets upset when we question, you know, and of course the answer matters. But, but I think the questioning can be good. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think questions are important. And, and that's something that my, my life and passion is, is built around, is around questions, mm-hmm. um, which is threatening to some, some groups 
whether in in religion or out um, because the questioning sometimes leads to the fact that we don't have the answer right going back to what you said mm -hmm. is trying to find more around the truth not having the truth mm -hmm. and it's i guess it's human nature but it's certainly societal um, where we are afraid to not have the answer um because mm -hmm. there are some places in history where not having the answer was perfectly fine and acceptable um and i guess you could look back to the rise really of i don't know almost monarchies but more if we think of like the roman or greek um political system where the politicians all of a sudden had the answer to your problem mm -hmm. um like we really start to see this movement in I mean, you can look in the Bible to the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, like they were supposed to have the answer. Some point in the ancient world, we started moving more to someone has the answer, the answer, not a answer, but the answer. And I think that has now become somewhat scary in some places to have questions and kind of, it's not all places, but certainly with more people who are confident in where they are in in not having those answers because i know lots of people with doctorates who are perfectly happy to say i don't have the answer but here's some tools that i have used to help me find answers but then there's also those who i have a doctorate this is the answer i know because i'm a doctor um so i think that's where it's it, it's it's murky almost but yeah answers or not answers questions are certainly i think very important and some of the importance of it sometimes is lost on our perception of how that should be answered yeah and i i like the that that feeling of like in the murkiness you know, questions can make a person feel uncomfortable especially when you know you're questioning something that's a part of them or it's core to them so when you're you're questioning those things it can make them feel uncomfortable which as you said earlier can really bring the turtle shell out you know just suck them back into their turtle shell but i i think that's something that if we tie back into like education we as a society and in education have to get better at being comfortable with feeling uncomfortable because and and oh boy we can this is a whole different uh set of worms but going into uh like technology and phones and screen time and instant gratification you could do it i mean there are people who spend their life now studying those things because you could tie them all together because we don't like to feel uncomfortable we don't like to not have that instant gratification anymore you know and it goes back to the questions when the answer is complicated we don't want it or when it's not a simple black or white answer we don't want it some a lot of times the answers that we're looking for are gray or there's very shades of black and white it depends on how how deep you go into your questioning or into your faith you know even going back to like the, the wrath of God was satisfied. 
Okay, then you start questioning, you know, why was God wrathful? You know, how did the blood of Jesus satisfy that? Did it really, was God actually angry? Was, you know, there, there's a lot of things that can make a person feel uncomfortable or, or challenge the way they had previously thought. And we don't want to do that. People don't like to do that. And it's partially beca just because we're not comfortable with that or, or people are uh, afraid to be vulnerable in their faith or they think, because I've, like, I've got some friends who, you know, I, I've told him that, that I am not that worried, you know, post-death. Like I'm, I'm not worried about whether I'm going to go to heaven or not. That's not, that's not that important to me. In my personal faith, it's more important to me that I focus on how I live my life here on earth. Am I doing the work of Jesus, loving my neighbor, doing what I can to help others, you know, sharing my faith? If that's what I'm doing, I firmly believe that God will take care of the rest. If I'm doing my best and, and you know, I, and I, I have Jesus as my savior and I'm, I'm just not that worried about it. Like, because my I've got a friend who will who will constantly bring up like you know he's like oh I hope I get to heaven you know like have you know I, I hope I get there that's, that's the goal I'm like you know so I, we we question each other on that and it and then I can tell that it makes him feel uncomfortable when I tell him that I'm not worried about you know when I die if I'm going to I'm like I'm not that worried about it and and he I say that and he's like. You, you'd almost thought I dropped some sort of bomb. He was, he's so gets, and, and, and I think that goes also back to, uh, the types of questions that we ask and just feel un uncomfortable about that. Cause it, it's just, it's hard. I would agree. Yeah. And I, I think that is, that ties into kind of the, the societal mm -hmm. shift. But also, and, and I'm working on an episode actually around the concept of death, but I think the way Westerners look at death is scary. So we sometimes, as Christians, will focus more on the, on the, the backside of life mm -hmm. and less so on most of what we're called to do is in this life right now. We have no manuscript that says when you get to heaven you shall blah 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 we have some ideas of what it will look like mm -hmm. but certainly that is something we will never have a full answer to right and that goes back to like our our discussion about uh knowing and 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 not, like not knowing i don't know i've come to uh i've just come to understanding that I'm not going to know what death is like until it happens. And I'm just content with that. I There's nothing I can do, nothing I can say, nothing I can. There's just nothing that's going to be able to give me the concrete answer that, that I, that I really want, that people really want about death. And, and I, I've just come to terms with that. I just, it's, it doesn't bother me. I don't, I don't worry about it because worrying about it isn't going to extend my life or give me any more comfort than just God will take care of it. I'm, I'm not that worried. And when, when we talk like that, you know, to, to people who, 
um, really put an emphasis on uh, like the, the heavenly nature of, of God or of our earthly journey. Sometimes it makes them feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, I want to shift just a little bit, uh, stepping yeah. back to something that you had talked about with um, Noah, Noah's Ark, for instance, uh, that was your example of if it actually happened or didn't, mm-hmm. what does that mean for us? Um, something that a part of my education has focused on is is in looking historically at what we can prove and what we can't prove from the Bible. But the bigger question has been raised in the latter part of my educational program of to how does it matter? It matters less can we prove the historical Jesus as to what does Jesus mean for us? Um, Which goes into, you know, single use Bible verses, they can be, they're good to know they are very useful but what do they mean if i can tell you the story of uh jonah or job but then tell you that a lot of scholars uh, the prevailing idea currently is that they are parables when i tell people that in the church it sometimes is controversial and shakes them because it has to be real. But if we step back and just look at what is it teaching us? What is it telling us? How is it showing that love of God? How is it showing different concepts, eschatological, um, you know, all these different ideas, concepts, things to, there's so much more depth when you just take it back. Um, And I think to tie it into history, it comes to, Um, the same sort of issue with the constitution sometimes people will what what were they explicitly saying and it becomes word for word is this this or is it a concept is it and uh, so I want to phrase it in a question for you um, because I don't think the bible and the constitution are are, are exact I'm not saying that (laughs) in any way shape or form um, because Christianity as a whole believes that the Bible is a living document, mm-hmm. meaning that this, it is um, the written word of God lived through Jesus, spoken by pastors. So it's it's still being spoken today. Mm-hmm. The Bible is just what we have written down, but it also continues to speak to us. And when we hold that belief, then we get into deeper concepts, deeper understandings. The Constitution is debated, um, whether it's a living or um, not stagnant. What do I want to? What do I want to say? Like uh, a, a a pinpoint in history. Like if it's mm-hmm. um, not dead document. Again, that doesn't sound right. Um, but you know what I mean? Not not a living document. I think it was a conjure. Like a concrete. Um... Yeah, yeah. Like, like is like it me. does it okay. does it adapt and change throughout history, or it, or throughout as time passes, or is it? Um, yeah, yeah. I'm also struggling with the words. Um, but I think that we can see some parallels in 
um, America with different concepts and different struggles with our society around that uh, the Constitution. Um, kind of in the same way of is it specifically saying this or is there something we should learn from this or is there something they're conveying in this vein? Um, so I'd be curious your thoughts kind of on that thought bomb that I just threw out there. So in the same way that we shouldn't take a single Bible verse and make that your personality, you also shouldn't take a line of the Constitution and, and make that your only thoughts, reasoning, explanation for policy in our, in our federal government. Because as we had talked a little bit ago about, you know, uh, context in the Bible, I, I would argue that in, in the Constitution, sure, what it says is extremely meaningful. And we should understand what it says. But I think the intent is, is more long-lasting because I guess there's two ways you can think about it. If the Constitution is meant to be read word for word, understood word for word itself as a primary document, and that's it, then, then it is outdated and should be updated or replaced. Like, and that's my opinion of, of, that, of that part. If you believe the Constitution is a living, breathing, changing, adapting to current times document, it is extremely important to understand what the founding fathers, framers had intended when they wrote the document. Because I do not remember how many words that the Constitution is. But it is unbelievably few to be the founding of a federal government of a country that is now 330 million people and like 10 million square square miles. Numbers could be off a little bit because I'm going by memory. But but right. but we're we're talking. I want to say I have a, a, a well I've got several copies of the Constitution. But my most impressive copy, in my opinion, is I have a little little pocketbook. It literally fits in my back pocket. And it's a little, I wanna say it's like 15 pages. And, and I think anybody who, who thinks that this 15 page little booklet that I can fit in my pocket is the end all be all of everything in our federal government for policy, I think they're missing the point. Um, when, when we think about, and it's true for the Bible as it is for the constitution, you have to think about context, meaning, what was intended, and and really get to that, you know, almost like breaking the fourth wall. Like what, you know, what what's really going on here? And I like to think of when we're thinking about uh, faith, the Wesleyan quadrilateral, uh, scripture, tradition, experience, reason. You've got to be able to think about what it is that you're trying to understand. Um, it's it's deeper than a single verse. The Constitution is deeper than a single amendment. You think about the Bill of Rights, right? We get our, our most essential freedoms in a sentence where the freedoms themselves are half the sentence. 
okay, well, what does that mean? You know, like thinking about like press, religion, the speech, like people write books on this one sentence because we can't possibly be able to find all of the meaning from a single sentence. What did we mean by the freedom of speech? Does that mean you can say whatever the heck you want whenever the heck you want to? Absolutely does not. That is not what that means. Freedom of the press. If we're thinking about the press, does that mean just newspapers? Because in the time this was written, there was no way anyone could have imagined the internet. You know, like, right. so, and and you can even go as far as, and this will, um, this is my favorite, because I, I like to be a little controversial sometimes. Um, never up. in a classroom. Never in a classroom. I, I will make sure I, I, I keep my teaching as, as unbiased as possible. But when it comes to, like, the we are second amendment rights the 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 right to to bear arms that sentence there's a comma in there does the comma matter you know in order to form uh or in order for a, for a, a well-regulated militia you know like how do you interpret that does that mean that your right to bear arms is tied to being in a well-regulated militia or are those two separate that you can bear arms and also have a regulated militia. And what did the founders really mean when they wrote that statement? You know, you you have to dig deeper. You have to be able to look at historical context of the documents. For the Bible, I, I really love going into like, and and I'm not a Bible scholar by any means, and I'm not historic, I'm not a biblical scholar either, and I don't claim to be. But I really enjoy the, the when when pastors and preachers and teachers in in uh, in, in church discuss um, the translations, or and and they talk about because I mean the Bible is is the most translated book in in history. It's the most printed book in history, and I think that's amazing. But that also, and, and, and I mean, how many English translations are there? I don't even, I don't know. I know there's at least King James, the New Standard Revision. There's, like, there's a there's, lot. There's so many. And, and I don't, like, I don't know. There's just, there's just a lot of ways that, that you need to be, like, it's complicated. So I just, I think that's something that we don't like to hear because it's complicated, you know? And it would be nice if everybody just learned Hebrew. Or Greek, right. and we could we could just all look at the original, uh, uh, the original manuscripts and be like, oh yeah, but but that's not gonna. Happen. We don't even learn Spanish as a single language in the United States. We're not gonna learn Greek or Hebrew. No, no, that uh, and then and that is it leads to a very interesting just tension. Hey, it's Nathaniel. Uh, we're going to break here and we're going to start the next episode here shortly. Uh, let me know what you thought. What questions have popped up for you now? Uh, until the next episode, why that stews. I hope you're doing well. Know that God loves you no matter what. And there is nothing that you or anyone else can do about that. We'll see you in the next episode. Mm-hmm.